Section 13 of Volume 1, A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francis Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 8 the Merovingians, Part Two. Clotaire I had, as has been already remarked, four sons. The eldest, Haribet, king of Paris, had to wife Ingeberge, who had in her service two young persons, daughters of a poor workman. One of them, named Marcovive, had donned the religious dress. The other was called Meroflede, and the king loved both of them exceedingly. They were daughters, as has been said, of a worker in wool. Ingoberge, jealous of the affection borne to them by the king, had their father put to work inside the palace, hoping that the king, on seeing him in such condition, would conceive a distaste for his daughters, and whilst the man was at his work she sent for the king. Haribert, thinking he was going to see some novelty, saw only the workman afar off at work on his wool. He forsook Ingoberge, and took to wife Meroflede. He had also to wife another young girl named Toidoehilde, whose father was a shepherd, a mere tender of sheep, and had by her, it is said, a son, who, on issuing from his mother's womb, was carried straightway to the grave. Haribert afterwards espoused Markovive, sister of Meroflede, and for that cause both were excommunicated by Sir German, Bishop of Paris. Hilperic, fourth son of Clotaire I, and king of Soissons, though he had already several wives, asked the hand of Galsuinthe, eldest daughter of Athaganild, king of Spain. She arrived at Soissons and was united to him in marriage, and she received strong evidences of love, for she had brought with her vast treasures. But his love for Fredegonde, one of the principal women about Hilperic, occasioned fierce disputes between them. As Galsuintha had to complain to the king of continual insult, and of not sharing with him the dignity of his rank, she asked him in return for the treasures which she had brought, and which she was ready to give up to him, to send her back free to her own country. Choperic, artfully dissimulating, appeased her with soothing words, and then had her strangled by a slave, and she was found dead in her bed. When he had mourned for her death, he espoused Fredegonde, after an interval of a few days. Amidst such passions and such morals, treason, murder, and poisoning were the familiar processes of ambition, covetousness, hatred, vengeance, and fear. Eight kings of royal heirs of the Merovingian line died of brutal murder or secret assassination, to say nothing of innumerable crimes of the same kind, committed in their circle, and left unpunished, save by similar crimes. Nevertheless, justice is due to the very worst times and the very worst governments, and it must be recorded that, whilst sharing in many of the vices of their age and race, especially their extreme license of morals, three of Clovis' successors, Theodebert, king of Austrasia, from 534 to 548, Gontran, king of Burgundy, from 561 to 598, 
and Dogobert I, who united under his own sway the whole Frankish monarchy, from 622 to 688, were less violent, less cruel, less iniquitous, and less grossly ignorant or blind than the majority of the Merovingians. Theodebert, says Gregory of Tours, when confirmed in his kingdom, showed himself full of greatness and goodness. He ruled with justice, honoring the bishops, doing good to the churches, helping the poor, and distributing in many directions numerous benefits with a very charitable and very liberal hand. He generously remitted to the churches of Auvergne all the tribute they were wont to pay into his treasury. Gontran, king of Burgundy, in spite of many shocking and unprincipled deeds, at one time of violence, at another of weakness, displayed during his reign of thirty-three years an inclination towards moderation and peace, in striking contrast with the measureless pretensions and outrageous conduct of the other Frankish kings his contemporaries, especially King Hilperic his brother. The treaty concluded by Gontram on the 28th of November, 587, at Andelot near Langres, with his young nephew Hildebert, king of Metz, and Queen Brunehand, his mother, contains dispositions, or, more correctly speaking, words, which breathe a sincere but timid desire to render justice to all, to put an end to the vindictive or retrospective quarrels and spoliations which were incessantly harassing the Gallo-Frankish community, and to build up peace between the two kings and the foundation of mutual respect for the rights of their lieges. It is established, says this treaty, that whatsoever the kings have given to the churches or to their lieges, or with God's help shall the hereafter will to give to them lawfully, shall be irrevocable acquired, as also that none of the lieges, in one kingdom or the other, shall have to suffer damage in respect of whatsoever belongeth to him, either by law or by virtue of a decree, but shall be permitted to recover and possess things due to him. And as the aforesaid kings have allied themselves in the name of God, by a pure and sincere affection, it has been agreed that at no time shall passage through one kingdom be refused to the loides, lieges, great vassals, of the other kingdom, who shall desire to traverse them on public or private affairs. It is likewise agreed that neither of the two kings shall solicit the loides of the other, or receive them if they offer themselves, and if, peradventure, any of these loides shall think it necessary, in consequence of some fault, to take refuge with the other king, he shall be absolved according to the nature of his fault, and given back. It has seemed good also to add, to the present treaty, that whichever, if either, of the parties happen to violate it, under any pretext, and at any time whatsoever, it shall lose all advantages, present or prospective, therefrom, and they shall be for the profit of that party, which shall have faithfully observed the aforesaid conventions, and which shall be relieved in all points from the obligations of its oath. It may be doubted whether between Gontran and Hildebert the promises in the treaty were always scrupulously fulfilled, but they have a stamp of serious and sincere intention foreign to the habitual relations between the other Merovingian kings. 
Mention was just now made of two women, two queens, Fredegonde and Brunehaut, who, at the Merovingian epoch, played important parts in the history of the country. They were of very different origin and condition, and, after fortunes which were for a long while analogous, they ended very differently. Fredegonde was the daughter of poor peasants in the neighborhood of Montdidier in Picardy, and at an early age joined the train of Queen Audovere, the first wife of King Hilperic. She was beautiful, dexterous, ambitious, and bold, and she attracted the attention, and before long awakened the passion of the king. She pursued with ardor and without scruple her unexpected fortune. Queen Audovere was her first obstacle and her first victim, and on the pretext of a spiritual relationship, which rendered her marriage with Kilperic illegal, was repudiated and banished to a convent. But Fridigondi's hour had not yet come, for Hilperic espoused Galsuinthe, daughter of the Visigothic king, at Hanegild, whose youngest daughter, Brunehaut, had just married Hilperic's brother, Sigibert, king of Austrasia. It has already been said that before long Galsuinthe was found strangled in her bed, and that Hilperic espoused Fredegonde. An undying hatred from that time arose between her and Brunehaut, who had to avenge her sister. A war, incessantly renewed, between the kings of Austrasia and Neustria followed. Zigibert succeeded in beating Hilperic, but, in 575, in the midst of his victory, he was suddenly assassinated in his tent by two emissaries of Fredegonde. His army disbanded, and his widow Brunehaut fell into the hands of Hilperic. The right of Asulum, belonging to the cathedral of Paris, saved her life, but she was sent away to Rouen. There, at this very time, on a mission from his father, happened to be Merovi, son of Hilperic, and the repudiated Queen Audovere. He saw Brunehaut in your beauty, her attractiveness and her trouble. He was smitten with her and married her privately, and Praetextatus, bishop of Rouen, had the imprudent courage to seal their union. Fredeconde seized with avidity upon this occasion for persecuting her rival and destroying her stepson, heir to the throne of Hilperic. The Austrasians, who had preserved the child Hildebert, son of their murdered king, demanded back with treats their queen Brunehaut. She was surrendered to them, but Fredegonde did not let go her other prey, Merovis. First imprisoned, then shorn and shut up in a monastery, afterwards a fugitive, and secretly urged on to attempt a rising against his father, he was so affrighted at his perils, that he got a faithful servant to strike him dead, that he might not fall into the hands of his hostile stepmother. Hilperic had remaining other son, Clovis, issue as Merovi was of Queen Audovere. He was accused of having caused by his sorceries the death of the three children, lost about this time by Fredegonde, and was, in his turn, imprisoned and before long poniarded. His mother Audovere was strangled in her convent. Fredegonde sought in these deaths advantages for her own children, some sort of horrible consolation for her sorrows as a mother. But the sum of crimes was not yet complete. In 584, King Hilperic, on returning from the chase and in the act of dismounting, was struck to mortal blows by a man who took to rapid flight, 
and a cry was raised all around of treason. "'Tis the hand of the Austrasian Hildebert against our lord the king. The care taken to have the cry raised was proof of its falsity. It was the hand of Fredegonde herself, anxious lest Hilperic should discover the guilty connection existing between her and an officer of her household, Landry, who became subsequently mayor of the palace of Nostria. Hilperic left a son, a few months old, named Clotaire, of whom his mother Fredegonde became the sovereign guardian. She employed, at one time in defending him against his enemies, at another in endangering him by her plots, her hatreds and her assaults, the last thirteen years of her life. She was a true type of the strong-willed, artful and perverse woman in barbarous times. She started low down in the scale, and rose very high without a corresponding elevation of soul. She was audacious and perfidious, as perfect in deception as in effrontery. Proceeding to atrocities, either from cool calculation or a spirit of revenge, abandoned to all kinds of passion, and, for gratification of them, shrinking from no sort of crime. However, she died quietly at Paris, in 597 or 98, powerful and dreaded, and leaving on the throne of Nostria her son Clotaire II, who, fifteen years later, was to become sole king of all the Frankish dominions. Brunehaut had no occasion for crimes to become a queen, and in spite of those she committed, and in spite of her outbursts and the moral irregularities of her long life, she bore, amidst her passion and her power, a stamp of courageous frankness and intellectual greatness, which places her far above the savage who was her rival. Fredegonde was an upstart, of barbaric race and habits, a stranger to every idea and every design, not connected with her own personal interest and successes, and she was brutally selfish in the case of her natural passions as in the exercise of a power acquired and maintained by a mixture of artifice and violence. Brunehaut was a princess of that race of Gothic kings who, in southern Gaul and in Spain, had understood and admired the Roman civilization and had striven to transfer the remains of it to the newly formed fabric of their own dominions. She translated to a home amongst the Franks of Austrasia, the least Roman of all the barbarians, preserved there the ideas and tastes of the Visigoths of Spain, who had become almost Gallo-Romans. She clung stoutly to the efficacious exercise of the royal authority. She took a practical interest in the public works, highways, bridges, monuments, and the progress of material civilization. The Roman roads in a short time received and for a long while kept in Anstrasia the name of Brunehaut's causeways. There used to be shown, in a forest near Borgs, Brunehaut's castle, Brunehaut's tower at Etamps, Brunehaut's stone near Torni, and Brunehaut's fort near Cahors. In the royal domains, and wheresoever she went, she showed abounded charity to the poor, and many ages after her death the people of those districts still spoke of Brunehaut's alms. She liked and protected men of letters, rare and mediocre indeed at that time, but the only beings such as they were, with a notion of seeking and giving any kind of intellectual enjoyment, and they in turn took pleasure in celebrating her name in her deserts. The most renowned of all during that age, 
Fortunatus, Bishop Poitiers, dedicated nearly all his little poems to two queens. One, Brunehaut, plunging amidst all the struggles and pleasures of the world. The other, Saint Radegonde, sometime wife of Clotaire I, who had fled in all haste from a throne to bury herself at Poitiers, in the convent she had founded there. To compensate Brunehaut was detested by the majority of the Austrasian chiefs, those loads, landowners and warriors, whose sturdy and turbulent independence she was continually fighting against. She supported against them, with indomitable courage, the royal officers, the servants of the palace, her agents and frequently her favorites. One of these, Lupus, a Roman by origin and Duke of Champagne, was being constantly insulted and plundered by his enemies, especially by Ursion Bertfried. At last, they having agreed to slay him, marched against him with an army. At the sight, Brunehaut, compassionating the evil case of one of her lieges unjustly persecuted, assumed quite a manly courage, and threw herself amongst the hostile battalions, crying, Stay, warriors! Refrain from this wicked deed! Persecute not the innocent, engage not, for a single man's sake, in a battle which will desolate the country. Back, woman, said Ursion to her, let it suffice thee to have ruled under thy husband's sway. Now it is thy son who reigns, and his kingdom is under our protection, not thine. Back, if thou wouldest not, that the hoofs of our horses trample thee under us the dust of the ground. After the dispute, had lasted some time in this strain. The queen, by her address, at last prevented the battle from taking place. It was but a momentary success for Brunehaut, and the last words of Ursion contained a sad presage of the death awaiting her. Intoxicated with power, pride, hate, and revenge, she entered more violently every day into strife, not only with the Austrasian lake chieftains, but with some of the principal bishops of Austrasia and Burgundy, amongst the rest with Saint Didier, Bishop of Yen, who, at her instigation, was brutally murdered, and with the great Irish missionary Saint Columba, who would not sanction by his blessings the fruits of the royal irregularities. In 614, after thirty-nine years of wars, plots, murders, and political and personal vicissitudes, from the death of her husband Sigebert I, and under the reigns of her son Theodebert, and her grandson Theodebert II and Thierry II, Queen Brunehaut, at the age of eighty years, fell into the hands of her mortal enemy, Clotaire II, son of Fredegonde, now sole king of the Franks. After having grossly insulted her, he had her paraded, seated on a camel, in front of his whole army, and then ordered her to be tied by the hair, one foot and one arm, to the tail of an unbroken horse, that carried her away, and dashed her in pieces as he galloped and kicked, beneath the eyes of the ferocious spectators. After the execution of Brunehaut and the death of Clotaire II, the history of the Franks becomes a little less dark and less bloody. Not that murders and great irregularities, in the court and amongst the people, disappear altogether, Dagobert I, for instance, the successor of Clotaire II, and grandson of Hilperic and Fredegonde, had no scruple, under the pressure of self-interest, in committing an iniquitous and barbarous act. 
after having consented to leave to his younger brother Haribert the kingdom of Aquitania, he retook it by force in 631. At the death of Haribert, seizing at the same time his treasures, and causing, or permitting to be murdered his young nephew Hilperic, rightful heir of his father. About the same time Dagobert had assigned amongst the Bavarians, subjects of his beyond the Rhine, an asylum to nine thousand Bulgarians, who had been driven with their wives and children from Pannonia. Not knowing afterwards where to put or how to feed these refugees, he ordered them all to be massacred in one night, and scarcely seven hundred of them succeeded in escaping by flight. The private morals of Dagobert were not more scrupulous than his public acts. A slave to incontinence as King Solomon was, says his biographer Fredegaire, he had three queens and a host of concubines. Given up to extravagance and pomp, it pleased him to imitate the magnificence of the imperial court at Constantinople, and at one time he laid hands for that purpose upon the possessions of certain of his lords or of certain churches. At another, he gave to his favorite church, the Abbey of Saint-Denis, so many precious stones, articles of value, and domains in various places that all the world, says Fredegaire, was stricken with admiration. But despite of these excesses and scandals, Dagobert was the most wisely energetic, the least cruel in feeling, the most prudent in enterprise, and the most capable of governing with some little regularity and affectionness, of all the kings furnished since Clovis by the Merovingian race. He had, on ascending the throne, this immense advantage, that the three Frankish dominions, Austrasia, Neustria, and Burgundy, were reunited under his sway, and at the death of his brother Haribert, he added thereto Aquitania. The unity of the vast Frankish monarchy was thus re-established, and Dagobert retained it by his moderation at home and abroad. He was brave, and he made war on occasion, but he did not permit himself to be dragged into it, either by his own passions, or by the unlimited taste of his lieges for adventure and plunder. He found, on this point, salutary warnings in the history of his predecessors. It was very often the Franks themselves, the royal lords, who plunged their kings into civil or foreign wars. In 530, two sons of Clovis, Hildebert and Clotaire, arranged to attack Burgundy and its king Godomar. They asked aid of their brother Theodoric, who refused to join them. However, the Franks who formed his party said, If thou refuse to march into Burgundy with thy brethren, we give thee up, and prefer to follow them. But Theodoric, considering that the Avernians had been faithless to him, said to the Franks, Follow me, and I will lead you into a country where you shall seize of gold and silver, as much as ye can desire, and when she shall take away flocks and slaves, and vestments in abundance. The Franks, overcome by these words, promised to do whatsoever he should desire. So Theodoric entered Avergine with his army, and wrought devastation and ruin into the province. In 555, Clotaire I had made an expedition against the Saxons, who demanded peace, but the Frankish warriors would not hear of it. Cease, I pray you, said Clotaire to them, to be evil-minded against these men. They speak as fair. 
Let us not go and attack them, for fear we bring down upon us the anger of God. But the Franks would not listen to him. The Saxons again came with offerings of vestments, flocks, even all their possessions, saying, Take all this, together with half our country. Leave us but our wives and little children. Only let there be no war between us. But the Franks again refused all terms. Hold, I adjure you, said Clotaire again to them. We have not right on our side. If ye be thoroughly minded to enter upon a war, in which ye may find your loss, as for me, I will not follow ye. Then the Franks, enraged against Clotaire, threw themselves upon him, tore his tent to pieces as they heaped reproaches upon him, and bore him away by force, determined to kill him if he hesitated to march with them. So Clotaire, in spite of himself, departed with them. But when they joined battle, they were cut to pieces by their adversaries, and on both sides so many fell, that it was impossible to estimate or count the number of the dead. Then Clotaire, with shame, demanded peace of the Saxons, saying that it was not of his own will that he had attacked them, and having obtained it, returned to his own dominions. King Dagobert was not thus under the yoke of his lords, either by his own energy, or by surrounding himself with wise and influential counsellors, such as Pepin of London, mayor of the palace of Austrasia, St. Arnold, bishop of Metz, St. Eligius, bishop of Noyon, and St. Andoenus, bishop of Raun, he applied himself to and succeeded in assuring to himself, in the exercise of his power, a pretty large measure of independence and popularity. At the beginning of his reign, he held, in Austrasia and Burgundy, a sort of administrative and judicial inspection, halting at the principal towns, listening to complaints, and checking, sometimes with a rigor arbitrary indeed, but approved of by the people, the violence and irregularities of the grandees. At Langres, Dijon, Saint-Gindy, Losne, Chalons-sur-Saline, Auxerre, Autun, and Sens, he rendered justice, says Fredegaire, to rich and poor alike, without any charges, and without any respect for persons, taking little sleep and little food, caring only so to act that all should withdraw from his presence full of joy and admiration. Nor did he confine himself to his unceremonious exercise of the royal authority. Some of his predecessors, and amongst them Hildebert I, Clotaire I, and Clotaire II, had caused to be drawn up, in Latin and by scholars, digests more or less complete of the laws and customs handed down by tradition, amongst certain of the Germanic peoples established in Roman soil, notably the laws of the Salian Franks and Riparian Franks, and Dagobert ordered a continuation of these first legislative labors amongst the newborn nations. It was apparently in his reign that the digest was made of the laws of the Alemannians and Bavarians. He had also some taste for the arts, and the pious talents displayed by Sens, Elo, and Quoen, in goldsmith's work, and sculpture, applied to the service of religion or the decoration of churches, received from him the support of the royal favor and munificence. Dagobert was neither a great warrior nor a great legislator, and there is nothing to make him recognized as a great mind or a great character. His private life, too, was scandalous, and extortions were a sad feature of its close. 
Nevertheless, his authority was maintained in his dominions, his reputation spread far and wide, and the name of great King Dagobert was his abiding title in the memory of the people. Taken all in all, he was, next to Clovis, the most distinguished of Frankish kings, and the last really king in the line of the Merovingians. After him, from 638 to 732, twelve princes of this line, one named Sigebert, two Clovis, two Hilderic, one Clotaire, two Dagobert, one Hildebert, one Hilperic, and two Throderic, or Theory, bore, in Neustria, Austrasia, and Burgundy, or in the three kingdoms united, the title of king, without deserving in history more than room for their names. There was already heard the rumbling of great events to come around the Frankish dominion, and in the very womb of this dominion was being formed a new race of kings, more able to bear, in accordance with the spirit and wants of their times, the burden of power. End of chapter 8